0: This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. On today's program, we go beneath the surface to the extent possible on the tumultuous events of the week and what they mean for both political parties. But first, we're going to look at the pressure campaigns already in motion with some success on President-elect Biden's objectionable picks for foreign policy and national security position with Marcy Winograd, now with Code Pink Congress and Code Pink co-founder, Medea Benjamin. We'll hear about their successes in blocking China hawk Michelle Flournoy for secretary of defense and torture defender Michael Morel for CIA and the campaign they are mounting to block Avril Haines for intelligence chief. We then turn to economic historian Robert Brenner, who takes a deeper look at the Republican Party after Trump's efforts to overturn the election and the storming of the Capitol building on January 6. While many posit a fracturing of the Republican Party post-Trump, Brenner says that Trump and the Trumpistas define the party, notwithstanding a small number of defections. So with are the Republicans and MAGA. And then we get Robert Brenner to look at what this means for the Democratic Party after its stunning success in the election in georgia and giving it a huge opening to take advantage of the moment we face we'll get his take when our program returns in just a moment this is jacobin radio i'm Susie wiseman and very glad to be back with you all as we look at this tumultuous week a week that perhaps surprised everybody after four years of what we thought were the most tumultuous, chaotic times. And I'm really pleased to have both Marcy Winograd and Medea Benjamin with me today. And we're going to actually talk about the plans and activities that they have for the Biden administration. But of course, we'll make some comment on the activities of this past week. It can't go without comment, but let me just introduce them. Marcy Winograd has long been in Progressive Democrats of America, and she served as the 2020 Democratic Delegate for Bernie Sanders and co-founded the Progressive Caucus of the California Democratic Party. She's a former public school teacher and a former candidate for Congress and is now coordinator of Code Pink Congress, which will be mobilizing co-sponsors and votes for legislation. And like Medea Benjamin, also with us today. Marcy has an impressive history of what I like to say is very effective activism. And I should just say both of them have been on the show before. Medea Benjamin, I'm really happy to welcome you back. Medea is a longtime activist and co-founder of Code Pink, but also co-founder of Global Exchange. And has written many books, most recently Inside Iran, The Real History and Politics of the Islamic Republic of Iran. She's been literally in the forefront of everything that Code Pink and others have done over the last, I don't know, what is it, 10 or 20 years?
1: 20 years now. 20
0: years. And somebody that we often see on TV. And, and and let me just say, because we're going to focus on the resistance to Trumpism and also what the likely resistance to Biden's worst impulses um, will be in the next period. So let me just begin by asking you both how you see your work at this time, because we've just seen, as in this last week, an attempt to overturn an election. A ragtag band of Trumpistas stormed the Capitol, and that was tacitly or implicitly or even actively supported by the president, and way too many Republicans. We're also in the midst of an out-of-control pandemic that is literally killing us in Southern California especially, and we also have a very feeble economy. And so that's just the background, literally, to what we face And before this week, all activity and attention was focused on, as uh, you've both been very deeply involved in pressuring the incoming administration and its appointments, Code Pink, Progressive Democrats of America, World Beyond War, and Roots Action have already scored significant successes that I want you to talk about in mounting campaigns against Biden's potential warmongering candidates for critical foreign policy positions. I want to start with Medea just on one question. One of the things that we saw this week was this band of Trumpistas storming the Capitol And incapacitated Capitol Police. Now, I can't tell how many dozens, if not hundreds of times I've seen you dragged out by these very same police. And we've already seen articles, I think, this most recently in Business Insider about the collusion to not do anything between the Department of Defense and other agencies with the Capitol Police. So how do you recognize the Capitol Police that you saw last Wednesday?
1: I think there had to be some level of collusion with some of them, because first of all, to not be ready with the tear gas and all the other you know, equipment that we've been unfortunately uh, paying for for all these years for them to have is one crazy thing. But the other is I've been going into those offices for 20 years. It is a maze inside those buildings, very, very hard to get around. Somebody had to help them get around, find their way. I heard even Jim Clyburn saying that his door was unmarked. They found his place. So somebody was helping them get around there. Now, I'm not saying that all the police were in collusion because you saw some of them being crushed and one died. It's very tragic. But somewhere along the way, there were some police who were involved in this as well. And it is so amazing for me to see that they actually got inside the building when you put your foot on those Capitol steps and you'd be arrested. And when we have protests and we have a lot of protests, I mean, it wasn't the size. We've had protests bigger than that. They have all the buses waiting to arrest you. And they have the police who are there with their zip ties, their handcuffs that are ready to haul you away by the hundreds. They're also ready to kettle you, which means, you know, box you in and arrest hundreds at a time. So they were obviously not planning to do any of that, which is just, you know, it just compounds the anger at how this took place, Recognize. That there was collusion with the police. And I just want to say one other thing, Susie, is that when we had a big action campaign to protect the Venezuelan embassy from being taken over by the right wing Venezuelans that went on for a long time, we were sleeping inside there for over a month. We had, when the right wingers came, they were assaulting us every single day, literally beating us up, dragging us, stealing our stuff, all kinds of things. And the police, different police, many different kinds of police there, were watching the whole thing and always refused to arrest them. And the last thing I wanna say is that when we would go to the APAC lobby days every week, you know, this right wing group that supports Netanyahu. I know every year I would get beat up by somebody, and I'm you know barely five feet and barely a hundred pounds. And I would start yelling to the police, arrest that man, he just hit me, arrest this one, and they would never arrest them. So, you know, we have seen over the years that the police, which comes out of a force that was designed to protect white people during the time of of slavery and freed slaves, has always been a racist force and always been a force that protects the right wing and the property owners.
0: Marcy, I'm going to ask you then, in the, given all of this, and the let's call it the enormous and even existential danger of what unfolded around the certification of the election, are you concerned that the focus is going to be on the danger that Trump represented and that the party continues to represent and his supporters, and that this may end up kind of giving Biden a pass? Or uh, let's call it a honeymoon, as I think you said earlier to me. In other words, are you worried that there's going to be no challenge now in this initial period to the kinds of appointments that you're already signaling you guys are going to be working against?
2: Well, first of all, I want to thank you, Susie, for inviting Medea and myself onto your show. It's a great honor to be with you and your listeners. Yes, I think we face two dangers right now. The first danger is obvious. We face dangers from Trump's fascist thugs, uh, racist thugs storming the Capitol, and threatening further violence, no doubt. And we have to be vigilant about uh, resisting that, challenging that, and talking about that. But at the same time, we also have to face the danger of giving Biden as what you call a pass, because in so doing, we may find ourselves right back here in four years or two years, even, The neoliberal policies that brought us to this juncture, the policies of privatization, of austerity, of exporting our wealth to militarism, uh, these are threats that we still face today and face with increasing urgency as we look at some of Biden's appointees. So I'm pleased to say that I've been working with Medea on creating a code pink Congress. This is a relatively new endeavor. We started about five weeks ago, and we are holding... Tuesday evening Zoom calls. We invite your listeners to join us around the country. You can find us at codepink.org backslash congress. Uh, We present guests, experts on foreign policy and peace legislation, demilitarization, decolonization, and we follow that up with calls to lawmakers' offices leaving messages about specific issues and legislation. So it is not the time to uh, suspend the honeymoon. Or rather, it is not the time for a honeymoon for Biden. It is a time for the left and progressives to fight very hard for a better future.
0: Well, how do you both see... I mean, I want to go into the what you've done so far. But before that, maybe just ask what your assessment is of the Biden administration. We've seen so far the disappointing picks from the cabinet Mostly traditional mainstream Democrats and even far right ones like Merrick Garland, which I'm assuming he thought I better give him something. He had something huge stolen from him. And that's being maybe generous. I don't know. But then there's also Victoria Newland, and there's the ones that I know you're going to talk about in a minute. But others would say that, well, yes, that's true, but he's also open to progressive challenges, like the ones that you have mounted. So I want to before we go into the individuals that you're working against, how do you see this administration in terms of really preventing it from becoming the old, let's call it imperial war party of the past, and doing the same old, same old in the things that you just said, Marcy, about austerity, and all of the things that will prevent the kind of program that Biden says he's going to push for.
1: I'll take a start at that, which is that so many of these people we see coming in are leftovers from the Obama administration and many of them responsible for policies that we have been fighting against. And let's remember that Biden himself supported the Iraq war, the biggest foreign policy boondoggle in modern history. On the other hand, when Obama came in, the peace movement fell apart, as did many other grassroots movements, not wanting to protest the first president in the United States. That's not going to happen with Biden. We see that already there are campaigns that have been mounted to push him on the cabinet picks and some of them successful, like getting Deb Holland for Secretary of Interior. There are two good picks. Uh, Merrick Garland is very bad in the Justice Department. Kristen Clark and Vanita Gupta are good. And while Bernie and his uh, huge supporters did. get anybody in this cabinet, which is really disgraceful. It is important to understand that Biden can be pushed. And he comes in on the foreign policy part with some good features, which is he wants to go back into the Iran nuclear deal. He says he wants to get out of the U.S. support for the Saudi-led war in Yemen. There will be some in the policy towards Cuba, for example. So some of these are are positive. Restart the start tree, rejoining some international organizations, the World Health Organization, the Climate Accord. You know, those are good things. In general, the policies will be The same neoliberal policies and on the foreign policy front, Biden himself talks about the United States as this great, exceptional country, uh, even though, you know, we can't even protect our people from COVID. And he talks about the U.S. having to... Its place at the head of the table, and I think just that framing is something that we have to fight against. So many people around the world, even before what happened on Wednesday, were saying, "Wait, if the United States can't even keep its people safe, you know, how are they going to be a, a the global leader?" And now, after Wednesday, there's all the more reason to say we don't want one country at the head of the table. We want a multipolar world. And we've got to push the Biden administration to recognize China is a major player and we don't want to go into war with China. Let's stop the whole Cold War. The same with Russia. So we have a lot to do to reframe the entire way that we look at ourselves in the world. So let Marcy
0: pick it up then. In terms of what you've accomplished so far in the bad picks, in terms of foreign policy, drones, and all the rest of it, and what you see, and are you focused mainly on foreign policy, or are you also looking at domestic concerns?
2: Susie, we are focused mainly on foreign policy and demilitarization, but I don't think we can separate that from our domestic needs. In other words, when you're spending over half of the discretionary income of the United States, discretionary taxes on uh, on militarism, 800 bases around the world, 80 countries, Uh, that doesn't leave a lot for our other needs, Medicare for Mm -hmm. All, for example. Since we began uh, about a month ago, we challenged Michelle Flournoy as a possible pick. Well, she was slated as to be Biden's Secretary of Defense. I was alarmed when I read her writing, particularly her writing on China, calling for increased war games in the South China Sea. We know what war games are. War games are mock- preemptive nuclear strikes on North Korea. This is insane. So we were glad that she was passed over for that position, even though we had to push back on so-called, quote, feminists saying that she would shatter the glass ceiling. If I hear that argument one more time about any of these feminist warmongers, I, I think I'll scream. Uh, we also were active in getting letters and petitions uh, speaking out against Mike Morrell joining Ron Wyden, who is a member of the Senate Intelligence Committee, the senator from Oregon, in saying that this is a non-starter. Mike Morello defended torture, waterboarding stress positions. This is not who uh, we want to restore faith in our country. So we're proud of those accomplishments. And now we're focused on Avril Haines. She's a heavier lift to uh, resist or oppose challenge because she has already been nominated as the Director of National Intelligence, Avril Haines, if you'll recall, she wrote the policy guidelines to legitimize, normalize drone strikes that erase the presumption of innocence. No charges, no trial, no defense. You are just a target of an assassination. And in these guidelines, and we've written about this in our Salon article that I co-authored with Medea, the criteria The profile of somebody to be targeted is completely blacked out, redacted. So there's absolutely no transparency here. In addition, she redacted the Senate torture report. This was a report that was compiled over five years. It was 6,000 pages directed by Senator Feinstein's office. She redacted that to a 500-page blacked-out summary. And she overruled the inspector general of the CIA when she failed to discipline CIA agents who hacked into the computers of Senate staffers. So she is tainted, as we said in our article, by drones and torture, and we cannot have her as the Director of National Intelligence. At the very least, we want the members of the Intelligence Committee to ask her tough questions about her role in legitimizing drone strike assassinations and normalizing, or rather shielding, the CIA from accountability. As a Director of Intelligence, she will oversee 17 intelligence agencies. This is tremendous power. And it must be challenged.
0: You said it's going to be a heavy lift. Is there a lot of support for her? Is there a lot of opposition? And what about on issues like whistleblowers and things like, let's say, extraditing Julian Assange, something like
2: that? I'll take the first part of that. Uh, Is there a lot of support for her? There's support for her within the military-industrial complex. Absolutely. The press has been very easy on Avril Haines. There isn't much written about her. Uh, If you read most of the the, uh, corporate media, they talk about her knowing judo, holding erotic uh, readings at her bookstore. Who cares, right? The real question is, what is she going to do when the CIA trains death squads in Afghanistan? Is she going to put a stop to that? Is she going to expose that? If her past is a prediction of her future, no. And that's wrong. And we have to challenge it. We want senators to speak out. So we'll keep pushing. And what are you doing on the ground, and what are your
0: plans for how you're going to go about this? I'll, I'll shift it back first to Medea, uh, because you've just written on Iran, and of course, what we saw in the Trump administration is a kind of unwillingness to engage in the kind of military conflict that previous presidents have done, except on Iran, where there was you know, a lot of bravado, but also the assassination you know, of their top intelligence director. I forgot the exact title, but what do you see – for Biden in that regard. You mentioned that he's talking about getting back into the Iran deal. Uh, Let's hear it.
1: Well, yes, I think he does want to revive the Obama legacy, the most important foreign policy win of the Obama administration, which was the Iran deal. On the other hand, let's make sure your audience recognizes that Uh, The Middle East is very complex and that Biden and his now of foreign policy, including Anthony Blinken, Jake Sullivan, they are very strong supporters of Israel. And it's very hard to tensions in the region if you're not going to deal with Israel and Saudi Arabia in a different way. But Biden has said at one that Saudi Arabia was a prior state. But then, when you recognize that the the uh, weapons manufacturers have such large deals with Saudi Arabia, and they are very powerful in our government as part of that military industrial. Complex, to really push back against them is going to be a heavy lift that has to come from grassroots mobilizing. So that's why I'm so excited that we have Marcy's Energy and have built up this every Tuesday where people can come in and learn about these. We're going to have sessions on China, on Russia, you know, among people who call themselves left and progressives, they are very anti-Russia and they are fueling a Cold War with Russia. So we have to educate people about all of these issues. And what's so brilliant about the Tuesday calls, it's not just another webinar, you know, it's a talk that then is followed up by action. And that's the only thing that's going to help to push the Biden administration in a positive direction on all fronts.
0: Marcy, we've just about run out of time, but I do want to ask you if perhaps in a bullet sort of form, you can go over your immediate plans on the biggest things that you're going to begin
2: with. Sure. Well, our first campaign starting a few weeks ago is on Admiral Haynes. This is after we we campaigned against Morell and Flornoy. So we're asking senators to vote against Avril Haines, but before voting against her, we're asking them to speak out and publicly oppose her nomination, in hopes that perhaps Biden would have a change of heart. Hey, it's never too late to change your mind. So call the Senate <laughs> Intelligence Committee members, call your senator, and join us at Code Pink Congress. Uh, you can Google us or codepink.org/slash/codepinkcongress. From there, we're going to be you know supporting specific pieces of legislation to uh, declare an end to the war with North Korea, to get out of Yemen, to stop supporting Saudi Arabia, to demilitarize, get people, to get Congress members to join the House Defense Spending Reduction Caucus. And we also absolutely want to support Bernie Sanders. This is one of the most exciting uh, results of our election in Georgia. Bernie Sanders will be the chair of the Senate Budget Committee. That's a very powerful position. This means that he'll be able to bring legislation to the floor through that committee process, hold hearings on all sorts of legislation that everything from reversing uh, Trump's tax scam to uh, Medicare for all to holding the CIA accountable for the crimes that it has committed and the expense both monetarily and human. So by all means, we want to support Bernie Sanders going going forward.
0: That's the best way to end this segment, I think, is on a note of total optimism about going forward. And I want to thank you both for joining me. Sorry, we've run out of time. It's not unusual. But for bringing us a sort of report of the kind of really essential work that you're doing and will be doing. And I'm going to call back on you as this progresses.
2: You can go to CodePink Congress. Is it CodePinkCongress.org? It's CodePink.org backslash CodePink Congress.
0: And you can join the interactive webinars. They're really just Zoom meetings. And I presume that's a pretty active discussion that goes on there. Thanks so much for joining us, Marcy Winograd. Now the co- coordinator of Code Pink Congress, and she'll be mobilizing co-sponsors and votes for legislation. And Medea Benjamin, the co-founder of Code Pink, and now t- sitting back so that she can just concentrate on the activism of Code Pink and other organizations. Thanks so much for joining me on Jacobin Radio. Thank you, Susie. Thank you. And don't go away. We're going to come right back. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. I guess today we're going to talk about the Trump invasion, whether the Republican Party, and so much more. Robert Brenner is going to be with us, and he is not only the executive producer of this program, he's a professor of history at UCLA and author of many books, including The Economics of Global Turbulence, The Boom and the Bubble, among other things. His latest article, which we discussed right here in New Left Review from May, June 2020 is called Escalating Plunder. And that's the story of how the economic aid package for the pandemic increased the upward redistribution of wealth in recent decades. We've had Robert Brenner right here for other recent interviews to discuss his views of what he calls the long downturn and the way the finance sector corporations and the very wealthy have rigged the economy to their own benefit. And we also did a deep dive Into the political economy of the 2020 election. So today, in the aftermath of the storming of the Capitol building by a ragtag band of Trumpistas, the failure of Trump and the Republicans to overturn the election, I've invited Robert Brenner back to probe the politics of the Republicans today asking a whole series of questions. Is the party fragmented and headed for a split, as many are saying? Or does the pro-Trump base of the party, half of whom supported the so-called insurrection of January 6, tell us more about the direction that it will take in the next period? And we're also going to look at the politics of the Democratic Party soon to be in power. Well, welcome first, Robert Brenner. I wanted to say that just from the intro that this is a moment of extreme conflict. The Democratic Party leadership, not known for its strength of its spine, whether or not it's actually, I guess we could say it is vertebrate now, has announced that confrontation is what they are moving toward and they've called for a second impeachment of Trump to be made official this week. And they also uh, had previously demanded Vice President Pence invoke the 25th Amendment, which would need members of Trump's cabinet behind it to declare him unfit For office. Many have seen this as a turning point for the Republican Party, an inescapable reckoning, according to the New York Times, that could lead to the reconfiguration, splits, disarray, and even the disintegration of the Republican Party. Now, of course, we're going to go through all of that, but how would you first characterize this moment and what do you think is at stake?
3: Yeah. What makes this moment so very central really decisive for the democrats and what has essentially provided the atmosphere for them so to speak to suddenly grow a backbone is that it has the potential of allowing them to move the terrain of struggle so to speak from everyday politics where they have to fight the GOP, and Trump on the basis of program, ideas, organization, and all of that, to a field that is apparently above politics, where they no longer have to speak to the nitty-gritty of interests and values, but can presumably and hopefully invoke values above and beyond, that all Americans supposedly are committed to. These, of course, are the values of law and democracy. What gave them a real opportunity to do this was, no one needs to be told, Donald Trump's incredible open flouting of democracy, of American commitment to law and order that he supposedly himself holds so dear, is his willingness to, I think two things were central. There was a lot more, but perhaps most obviously, his direct call to the Georgia Secretary of State yeah. to find 12,000 votes to reverse the Georgian electoral outcome and to have that recorded. And then you know, even more, the coup de gras, so to speak, although to say it was a coup in any sense is quite misplaced. But on the other hand, his incitement and support for the invasion of the Capitol and so forth. So previously, the Democratic Party saw a chance or what they thought was a chance when Trump was caught with that phone call to the president of Ukraine. But this is obviously a much greater opening for them because Trump's offense here would seem on its face even more egregious and indefensible than Nixon's Watergate, which set the GOP back for the better part of a decade. Remember, after Nixon and the GOP won the greatest landslides ever over McGovern in November 72, the Democrats were given a chance for almost a decade to make a comeback by Watergate. At this moment, the offenses of Trump, at least apparent, seem to go much further. And this is why the Democrats have such a apparent opening.
0: Well, you know, what you say is, it leads directly into the question about what the consequences are of Trump's actions for the future of the GOP. And I think it's really interesting that you just brought up Nixon and Watergate because it seems that every new whatever we want to call it. Every new offense is more egregious than the last. And the bar just keeps moving not only to the right, but also to what is acceptable and more and more, unfortunately, is acceptable. So it means what the consequences are for Trump's actions for the future of the Republicans. And many have seen you know, this conduct of his as leading irrevocably into a crisis for the Republicans. And it's all over the media. Fragmentation, a possible de facto split, One that sees a possible break by the Republican elite leadership, maybe the old country club Republicans, almost none of them left, from Trump and Trumpism, and or a possible break between the capitalist and rich supporters from Trump and the Trumpist base. And I note that, you know, just looking across social media and the blogs that people are writing, Mark Cooper in his latest Coop Scoop said something like, Trump may be radioactive, but he remains king of the insurgent Republican Party. and We know Mike Davis wrote in The Guardian and on New Left Review that he thinks that there is a de facto split in motion, and that was echoed by other articles at the same time. So there's clearly a lot of different interpretation about what's going on, but I know you have, you know, a sort of unique way of looking at it, and I'd like to hear how you see it.
3: I don't know how, <laughs> how unique at all it is, but I think simply the the thing that kind of gives us the, uh, you know, framework for understanding the coherence or incoherence of the Republican Party under Trump and its vulnerability is precisely how much the Republican Party was a Trumpist party right up till early January. It was dominated by Trump the person, Trumpist organization and institutions, and, of course, MAGA politics. And a key thing to see is that, I mean, I think people may, by now, are aware of this extraordinary polling success of Trump. Even a month and a half after the GOP's defeat, his approval rating was 90% after defeats customary for the party to lick its wounds and kind of go back to the drawing board, there was no doubt that he was the leader at that point and could basically dictate his own continuity and power. Remember, right up to January 5th, essentially no one, top to bottom in the party, including Mitch McConnell, was willing to directly challenge Trump's you know, quite insane claim that he won the election by a landslide and that it was stolen from them. What people said is those who didn't want to associate themselves directly in support of this claim with to say, he has every right to contest it to the full extent of the law. So the reason for this, obvious again to everybody, is that if you cross Trump, Trump's appeal to the party to primary the candidate or otherwise eliminate an elected official would result in his immediate destruction, even a Mitch McConnell. So that's the bottom line. I don't think many would challenge the control of the party and the Trumpist nature of the party as of, say, the end of December 2020. But What is changed and what is going to give us a test of the hypothesis that the party is now in trouble is that Trump, with his actions, basically around the 6th of January, forced the party into what looked like and what has looked like an impossible position And it's this impossible position that has led people to think that the GOP has now got to change Mm
2: -hmm. and will
3: become something very different from the Trumpist party that it has been. You know, he everyone knows this. We've just been through it a few days ago. He forced even his closest supporters into this impossible loyalty test like Pence. Yeah, because he wanted them to challenge the count of electoral votes that had already been certified at every state. Technicality, everybody knows this. It wasn't what was going on on the 6th of January. It was not a certification, but merely a count of the electoral college votes that were already registered in each state, one way or another, for Trump or for Biden. As uh, Harry Litman hilariously put it, I guess it was the LA Times, he said, is a perfect analogy, says it was Trump was demanding that the reader, you know, the persons who opened the envelope at the time of the Academy Award to see who had won actually end up stating the outcome themselves. And that's, of course, what Trump wanted Pence to do and wanted his followers in Congress to do pretty over the top. Then, of course, came what went parallel to this was Trump's organization and encouragement of a demonstration that morning of this Electoral College count and the demo at the Capitol? But of course, what went well beyond that, which was it being capped by the invasion into the Capitol, which for all to see the takeover of the Capitol for hours, something that was completely unforeseeable unprecedented. That invasion could obviously not possibly be backed by anyone, at least supposedly committed to small d democratic political order. It appeared that in a near literal sense, a crossing of the Rubicon, which is actually a great analogy for this, a defiance of the democratic republican order. So we, we couldn't have more clearly put the issue of whether the republican party has now got to reshuffle in order to survive mm-hmm. new factions new interests etc obviously we're very in very early days but i think we can already see some important manifestations that make it clear that any idea that the the Republican Party as a Trumpist party is going to quickly be transcended, at least should be put in some question. We won't know for a while, but at least in some question. Let's see what's happened. So far, In response to Pelosi and Schumer, so far as we know, of course, the vice president has refused to invoke the 25th Amendment process in the cabinet. We're pretty sure that won't happen. So Mm -hmm. to, to that extent, the top level of the Republican Party around Trump is intact so far. However, that meant the threat came from Pelosi, Schumer, of course, that from then on, what will happen if this doesn't happen, if Trump doesn't leave, and if there's no recurrence to the 25th Amendment, they're going to go to impeachment. But what so far on the impeachment, I know people read the New York Times, the LA Times read the papers of record every day, they talk about the, essentially, the falling apart. The defections. The falling apart of the hard line of the Democrats and the falling apart of the Republicans. So it hasn't happened on that basic front. We have Murkowski, Sass, we maybe have Romney, who will say guilty if the impeachment is passed. There are a handful, I don't even know, more than a couple of representatives from the Republicans who will support the impeachment. Even more stunning Everybody knows who you know because we've. This has been an incredibly intense moment of looking at the evidence. A Newsweek poll. People know. If they don't, they should. More than half of the Republicans who were polled actually supported the invasion of the Capitol building. To me, this might be the most astonishing of the pieces of evidence that have come out so far, which indicate a support for. Trump that he might have hoped for, but could never have. I uh, don't. I don't think so anyway. An incredible support of the most militant far right part of the party, the so-called, you know, really a kind of vanguard of the party. Whether it's actually how closely it's related to the whole the party is unclear. But the party is now half of it has come to line itself up behind that. So just so happened that the GOP National Committee was meeting this weekend and not terribly surprising, it's continued totally to support the Trump leadership. That obviously was no big deal. That had to be expected. Trump had carried out a complete kind of Trumpification of the party up from top to bottom. So that kind of restructuring by the Trump forces was not going to be changed overnight. But I think what should not be neglected, and this is pointed out by the GOP operators, this is not simply a top-down bureaucratic form of control. Trump has, despite the claims of irrationality, et cetera, he, from the day he won, basically has gone out day after day, systematically preparing for the 2020 election, is state by state and nationally. Now, he and the, the GOP, I think, have succeeded beyond their wildest dreams in this. The Democrats had many advantages going into it, including the pandemic, including the terrible economic crisis, yet the outcome, as people know, was less than exhilarating for the Democrats. And I think what needs to be seen here is not simply that the Democrats Margins weren't so great that the Republicans kept up in terms of the presidential election, etc. cetera. But that they did so in the face of the Democrats raising their electoral turnout by 20%, an incredible improvement. This was not quite met by the improvement by Trump which is only about 15%. And so Biden squeaked through, as people have pointed out. But that squeaking through was not really a a Democratic Party shame. It was a triumph for the Republicans. And what it went along with, of course, is that the Republicans flipped 12 seats at latest count, maybe 13 seats from 2018. And what that meant is that they are almost back to where they were all the gains that they had made in 2018 are mostly lost so at this point it seems to me not very clear that the republicans are in desperate search of an alternative the las vegas odds uh, <laughs> which are you know are worth uh, paying attention to are still 3 to 1 against his going out under any circumstances, 10 to 1 under him being impeached and convicted. So I think to come quickly to a conclusion, on this point, I think, especially watching the media, the right wing media, stand behind Trump pretty clearly. Trump is in a position to do what, or he may be in a position to do what it looked like was beyond the pale, which was to be able to leave office, they would have wished he would have just, you know, say, okay, we're leaving office. The election was stolen. We were stabbed in the back. So to have a Trumpist leadership after the election, be in great position. To come back in 2022, 2024, it looked like maybe this crazy stuff that happened on the 6th was going to undermine that. But I think while we're far, far away from any sort of uh, resolution of that question, I think we have to take into account that real possibility that it has not been interrupted in the way many would have expected. We don't know, but this is a something that is perhaps a greater possibility than people would have thought as this was happening in the next day and uh, the Nancy Pelosi-Schumer demands.
0: Okay, so (laughs) I can see that you have a different view than a lot of people who say that the actions of storming the Capitol have, if not irrevocably, at least uh, looked to have smashed the Republican Party as we know it. But then on the other hand, as you've mentioned, Robert Brenner, The defections literally from Trump have been a handful, maybe a little bit more than a handful. We don't know how much it's going to be, but it doesn't represent anything like the kind of definitive split. And of course, many others are saying it's pretty shocking, too, that you have that many people who would be supporting Trump's not only intent to overthrow the Democratic election and to, you know, do so without any evidence of it also to support the storming of the Capitol. So, okay, let's move to the Democratic Party. Others think that this may give the, as you said in the beginning, the Democrats some backbone, that they'll move ahead and also at the same time, a bit of a pass for the kinds of things that they may be planning. So in the next few days, it looks like Yes, we're moving toward impeachment. Articles have been drafted. It would seem as that that would benefit a large part of the Democratic Party House, though not everyone. And there still are a significant number of centrists, but it would also allow the party to appear if not left wing, at least more progressive and more, what what should we say? You said more vertebrate, that they are actually moving. And it would be a clear concession to the left within the Democratic Party. Failing to do so would be so demoralizing and a real slap in the face for African-Americans and people of color and an easy way to offer something to AOC and the progressive so-called squad within the Democratic Party. But beyond that, you know, how do you see the conundrum or not that the Democrats may be in.
3: I think, as you just said, I agree with your formulation completely. That is that the advantage of the push to impeach, which should be quite winnable in the House, even if the conviction is probably, you know, out of the question, at least I would think so. that offers the party a way finally to at least appear to Concede something to its left wing, above all to the Black Congressional Caucus, the Progressive Caucus, who have wanted at least some show, some kind of return to their complete support of the centrist Biden in the election. I think it's likely that that will be approved, as I said, but what it actually means for the party might be even less than meets the eye in that respect, because so far, at least, Biden himself has refused to come out in support of impeachment. And he's waffled at very best, saying he would support it, he would have supported it, but it's too late and all that. Of course, if he had been thinking of the Democratic Party alone, if he had been thinking of its various factions, if he had been thinking of ways to speak, to support those parts of the party which we would have predicted have been neglected, like the Progressive Caucus or the Black Caucus, he would surely have used this to make at least some kind of symbolic gesture that he himself doesn't particularly want to do that or so far doesn't clearly want to do that. Looks like he still wants to keep himself free, essentially to maneuver, to maneuver with forces to his right. I can't see any other reason otherwise why he wouldn't have come out immediately with that symbolic gesture and made himself look to people, even though it's only symbolic, that he's finally giving something to Bernie and so forth. Symbolic, as I said. However, it's also the case that the realism based on electoral results, might have sobered Biden and made him wonder what a more clear-cut way forward was for the centrist party that he represents. Again, it's pretty striking, and I think many people have pointed this out, that though Biden won, I think not many people have properly appreciated the Democratic electoral effort, which was fairly spectacular, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. The gains in this, the increased votes at every level were very impressive, but nonetheless, they were not enough because of the Republican turnout, the Republican electoral mobilization to prevent the... Republicans from taking back 12 seats. So he's sitting there and he should be sitting there wondering about a way forward. Now, one thing that is very partial, it's more partial than people may want to grant, is that they did, of course, have on the day of the 6th, pretty big day, they did have a spectacular victory in Georgia. And they won it because of the very, very powerful electoral mobilization that took place among African-Americans in Atlanta and in the suburbs, which had only recently been the heartland a couple decades ago, had been the heartland of the far right Republican revival, Newt Gingrich and, and all of that. So that was a pretty spectacular win I think that what really should put a sobering gloss on that victory was that that very morning Biden nominated Merrick Garland for attorney general. Garland, of course, you know, was famous for having been rejected by Mitch McConnell in one of his many ingenious maneuvers. But as we know, Garland had himself been nominated because it appeared to Obama that he was so, for lack of a better term, not really a very precise one, he was so conservative or so centrist that the Republicans couldn't really reject him. Of course, they went on and they did reject him. And so now Garland, who was hardly a vanguard element in, Say the question of criminal justice is now being put forward in the wake of Black Lives Matter and all of that. And although this has been somewhat downplayed, I don't see how you can fail to look at the rest of the f- very important cabinet appointments that have been made. People have looked to the quote, good appointments. Mm-hmm. But I think we should linger on the important appointments. One critically important appointment is Attorney General. A second critically important appointment is Secretary of the Treasury, Janet Yellen, who has somehow received a pass from so much of the, you know, all levels of the party, all wings of the party. Yet Janet Yellen is, of course, indistinguishable from Ben Bernanke. Remember, it was Bernanke and Yellen, who had led the call for the so-called bailout, which was really the corporate bailout, that has been perhaps the definitive feature of political rule over the last year of the Trump administration, the pandemic and economic crisis. That move, people should not forget, and of course it's in the papers every day, that move has won the billionaires of this economy, I think there's about a few hundred of them, a trillion dollars over this period, that bailout. Yellen herself has been caught in the same way Hillary Clinton was, making something like $7 million in speaking fees from Wall Street firms, Goldman Sachs, Google, City National, Barclays, Credit Suisse, all of those. And that's what she's done in her period out of office. The um, New York Times amazingly does some amazing things these days because the extremity of what happens through the bipartisan consensus is so Shocking to journalists that they see, say, look, this is this revolving door. She's out $7 million from various pieces of the finance industry in two years. She's back. Same thing for Biden's uh, proposed Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, who, thanks to the same excellent reporting and pressure, we see that he is the firm that he Organized this is a consulting firm, so to speak, has consulted with the military-industrial complex with similar results. So why emphasize this? Because what do the Republicans say about the Democrats? Well, it's a swamp, and the Democrats might reply, "Well, this swamp is very, you know, clean," but nonetheless, it's hard not to see it as a swamp. And the bottom line here is to compare the difference in the nature of support for the Democrats who won the election and the Republicans who lost it. We know that the Republicans, or it looks like, it looks very much like, the Republicans who lost the election are militant supporters of its leadership willing to come out and back it And that even the electoral base, which is a passive base to an important degree, are willing to support the most militant actions by its, you know, uh, what I would see as as its crazed wing. On the other hand, the Democrats have been able to win on the basis pretty much of anti Trump and very little else. So when you think, of the question of what the nature of the support of these two parties is, and you ask the question about democracy, there is a legitimate question as to what is the real meaning of democracy for the Democrats. I mean, I think that there is an extremely difficult problem For the Democrats, for the Democrats left, and for the left in general here, that comes out of this crisis. The crisis makes the Democrats, or appears to put the Democrats as the representative of democracy, and makes the Republicans and Trump the opponents of democracy, But the simple question that needs to be asked is, what is the actual concrete meaning of democracy in this context where it seems to have been separated from any connection to material interests? The Democrats support it, but as more than an abstraction, how can they show that? One immediate point of comparison that should be raised is with the whole history, even of this pretty awful pro-capitalist party from the 30s to the 60s. In that period, there was some connection between the material interests of the part of the party and democracy. So in the 30s, of course, a high point People who fought for their interests and saw immediately the connection between formal democracy, if you will, and fight for material interests. You might say that that could conceivably be set to hold as late as the great civil rights demonstration on Washington in 1963. But where hundreds of thousands came out for rights and economic rights, material interests, the Black struggle, but material interests also of the unions who took part in it. Don't want to be romantic about this, but this is even talking about this in a minimal way. But think of our situation today, the Democrats and democracy. On the one hand, you have this incredible mobilization by the far right for what ultimately happened on January 6th. I doubt if they had thought they could get into the Capitol building, but up until that point, it's a mobilization against democracy, as uh, is understood by a lot of the American population, you know, preventing the results of the election from being registered in practice. They mobilized against democracy. On the other hand, knowing that this demonstration was going to take place, had there been any connection between democracy and fights for material interests or people's identification with the Democrats with, quote, democracy today, you would have thought there would have been some sort of mobilization against the far right. What could have been a more straightforward moment where democracy was being denied? On the other hand, just to complete the point, I think it's been more and more understood. This is not telling anyone anything. But for the Trump forces, for the Republican base, there has been a more or less conscious disconnect between American constitutional democracy as they see it being practiced and what they see as their material interests. Of course, what is being said here is that they feel that they can only ultimately defend their interests through this MAGA politics, which represents, at best, a racist, anti-immigrant, patriarchal politics. That politics needs the curtailment of democracy. And so it has been the Republicans' goal to limit it. The Democrats, I hate to say it, but not through much fault of their own, have become fairly formally reliable on these questions because they need those votes. They can't see the curtailment go too totally. And they have been legal defenders. And that has meant that the black population has minimally had to support the Democrats. But I think it's striking The degree to which that question of democracy has not led, even though it's long been seen by the Republicans as crucial to curtail it, it has not really been seen in any active way by the supporters of the Democrats and that the economic material outcome of democratic bipartisanship with the Republicans over the last year in which just to make the final most obvious point, there is still no recognition of the need for making healthcare thoroughly accessible to the whole population one way or another for free, like in all the rest of the civilized world. That again is is some indication in a very, in this very constricted context of the extreme separation of the Democratic Party from any aspiration to represent the democracy that's supposedly at, acutely at stake at this moment.
0: Wow. Well. Okay. So thank you so much for all of that, Robert Brenner, and it looks like. I mean, I think it was a very even-handed analysis. Of, even-handed. <laughs> even-handed, in the sense that you know we've heard much more sort of optimistic takes in a way that the Republicans are in disarray, even though they won so many votes and had so much support for stealing the uh, overturning the election and also for storming the Capitol. But on the other hand, there are activists of all over the place pressuring Biden to make better appointments and will continue on very critical issues like health care and climate. But also, you know, Bernie Sanders is going to be in charge now because we flipped the Senate. He's going to be in charge of the budget committee. So that's going to be an important post. So I think the only prediction that one can possibly make for the new period is that there's going to continue to be polarization and conflict, perhaps some gains. And of course, we're going to invite you back to discuss it well it's
3: a pleasure to play devil's advocate if that's what it is in this context i hope i'm proved quite wrong about both the republicans and the democrats and we'll have to see
0: i want to thank my guest robert brenner ucla historian and author of many many works on political economy Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Suzy Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman.